Well, so what would you like to talk about out of these? Do you want? Do you have opinions about all of them? Would you like to talk about all of them? Some of them? Yeah. I mean, I may not have a lot to say about some of them, but we should at least try to talk about all. Yeah, let's try to talk about all of them. All right, so let's get let's get into it. And then, like I said, the idea here is that I'm going to do an episode about the the Power Mac G5 <laughs> and the and the Mac Pro cheese grater, like with with those comments from everybody. Instead of it mm-hmm. being like a yeah, per person episode, it'll be a per Mac episode. All right. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk about the Power Mac G5. Uh, you know, in my in my Mac 20 story, I, I told the story about going down to Apple. Uh, with my family in tow and because uh, we were going somewhere for the 4th of July. And now my, my daughter, who is a college student, was a was a toddler then. It was a long time ago. But that was the, you know, Power Mac G5. That was, that, that's a look and feel that has stayed with us for, for a very long time and was a, a real change from the, the polycarbonate uh, G3 and G4 that preceded it. Yeah, that was uh, the Power Mac G5 was uh, like a miniature version of the. It came at a time where there was a miniature version of the Mac Malays that we recently are coming out of here in 2020. Um, at the time the Power Mac G5 was released, Apple's tower line of computers, which had sort of been resurgent with the blue and white G3 and then a whole series of G4s with a bunch of funny names and mm-hmm. weird case details after that, uh, it was in a bit of a situation because. The insides of the the latter day G four towers were not to use Apple's parlance particularly balanced. Right, there was the the memory bus speed. I, I recall was very slow compared to the CPU speed and the CPUs themselves and everything else that was inside them wasn't keeping up with the competition. And it, you know it became more and more ridiculous to put faster and faster CPUs in an otherwise unchanged or not changed enough sort of motherboard that was not meant to support chips at that speed i hope i'm getting the details right this is going to be a hallmark of all of these sure reminiscing about old Macs. is that uh how much detail can i remember but anyway my recollection was is that it was the memory bus so the, the cpus kept getting faster and faster but the memory bus stayed the same speed and that disparity just got worse and worse so power users who wanted to use these big fancy expensive tower computers were like come on apple like i understand you can keep putting in faster and faster cpus but you're not you're not making the whole thing fast like it's time We've had this this case for a long time now with all the different details on it. Went from G three to G four. What's the next leap? I, I you know, and it, I think it never, I think it would be fair to say to have the answer. I think it would be fair to say it really kind of went from G three to G four to G four to G four to G four, where they kept on yeah. pushing it a little bit and changing the outside of the case. But like th- there was definitely a feeling like, what's the next step? What is truly the next step and and you know when you name something a g3 and then the next thing the g4 everybody's gonna say what's the g5 when's the g5 where is it we want it and that went on for a couple of years for sure yeah and and it wasn't just the like oh we just want the next thing it was that the the latter day g4 machines were just not good powerful computers they were it was they were unbalanced it's like buying a, a hot rod car that has like a really big engine, but a really weak transmission. Oh, that's yeah. a terrible analogy. But, anyway, but, but it, it was, was really bad therm- right? really bad thermal issues too, right? The, the 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 you know loud fans on some of those latter day G fours that were there because Apple was desperately trying to blow air through those processors. Yeah, yeah, because they kept making the C- the CPUs faster, and the the cooling wasn't great on those machines. They had like little holes to get let the air come in, and these channels yeah. that would go through. I recall a friend of mine had one of those uh, later G fours. 
and it was just making terrible noise and you know like it it got louder and louder with age so eventually opened it up and and took apart all of the like little baffles that the air comes up through and there was a giant triangular wedge of cat hair and sort of the fun the intake mechanism like the it was so constricted that the cat hair got stuffed up in there right uh not a problem they would have with later chains. so anyway the 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 Mac G5, the my uh, one memory of this is before it was released, Apple Insider or somebody had leaked a bunch of specifications, and they looked for all the world like those fantasy specifications that you used to see back in the, the glory days of Mac OS rumors, like the original. Am I getting the name right? God, I'm so old. Eh. You know, the original Mac rumor site, one of the original popular Mac rumor sites, but always have these fantasy rumors of like, this amazing thing is going to happen, and is going to be this Mac with this super duper co-processor and this AV board and this holographic memory and just yeah, people and just make stuff up. A lot of wish casting. It and yeah. It, yeah. Or just like people seeing if they could get a rumor published, they'd send the most ridiculous thing <laughs> possible to the rumor site, try to make it sound real and then enjoy seeing it on reported as an actual rumor. Right. When this was released, it was like, it's going to be two CPUs, two gigahertz, uh, like with a with a one gigahertz memory bus and like all these ridiculous stats that, it, that were not just like a little bit better than the G4. Like setting aside that it was going to be this new G5 chip, it was like, oh, it not only is it going to be a new G5 chip, chip but the memory bus is going to be like five times faster. The CPU is going to be two times faster. There's going to be two of them. It you know the, the RAM ceiling was going to be so high, it's going to have this many slots, so on and so forth. It seemed ridiculous. It seemed it was so overblown. They were like, oh yeah, one other one. It wouldn't be great if they actually re- released that thing. Uh, and Steve Jobs on stage uh, introducing it uh, made fun of the fact that there may have been a leak that, uh, you know, revealed some specifications. And that's when it, I think it started to dawn on people that that wasn't just a fantasy rumor. All that stuff was correct. And so this is one of the few times where App- Apple secrets leaked and people didn't believe them because they sounded too good. And it turns out it was all true. One hundred percent true. And I bought this machine. I bought the first-gen dual 2 gigahertz Power Mac G5, which was a machine that had some problems. But, boy, what a, what a leap over what came before. The huge case, which, as you noted, is, you know has been around for ages. No problem with getting air into that thing. The whole front of it was basically open to air with a million little holes, and then the air went straight out the back. Amazing design. I think the uh, the side that comes off completely, I actually preferred that to the, the blue and white that folded down because I felt like it gave you better access. There was that cool clear baffle thingy that, to guide the air. Yeah. Nine computer-controlled fans. Yeah, it was all uh, about was the air. Like, all about this, this, moving uh, that air. Yeah, and I searched I searched so long for, for uh, an episode of ATP. I was trying to talk to this about. I could swear there was some video or thing where somebody, my recollection is, was Johnny Ive, but who knows? It could have been like Ruby or one of the other hardware people who said that the hardware design of the Power Mac G5 case was inspired by the heat exchangers that were like up in the rafters of the loft, industrial loft space where they were doing design work. Hmm. I have not been able to find that, so maybe I just dreamt it. Yeah, I don't remember that either. this This case absolutely looks like a big metal heat exchanger. Air, you know, cold air comes in the front, hot air comes out the back. Uh, it's it's a straightforward design. It's it's very, you know, Apple's done a bunch of these very straightforward designs, mostly in the other direction where you've got the fanless chimney cooling in the, in the Power Mac G4 Cube, you've got the fanful ch- chimney cooling in the trash can uh, Power Mac. But yeah, uh, cool air in the front, uh, hot air out the back is a time tested design, uh, and this was the advent of that. This wasn't yet into the true heyday of this design when they went to Intel when you had this amazing machine that was also very fast and versatile and also ran Windows and so on and so forth. But well, let's start here. 
Well, the, the and the external design yeah. was was strong enough that they continued it right, which is a which is a lesson that um, we'll see what Apple does this time. But that that was sort of the lesson of the Intel transition is they didn't use it as an industrial design transition. They just you know tr- transitioned every product to an Intel version, and so we got the Mac Pro, which was essentially the Power Mac G5 case. The inside changed a lot, but the exterior didn't. And I was going to mention, I feel like the Intel transition is a huge part of the story of this computer, because when it was announced, of course, there was that famous... Uh, IBM tells us because this was a partnership with IBM and IBM tells us they're going to do three gigahertz uh, and we're going to bring that to you. And we, we, you know, we finally, the leash is off and Apple is going to be able to bring you all the power you want. And instead this ended up being kind of the symbol of uh, when IBM couldn't do it, the symbol of Apple um, breaking its relationship with the PowerPC Alliance and with IBM and, and switching to Intel and turning that, 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 the flagship of the G5 processor, since it never could go to a laptop, a- into a Mac Pro running Intel. That that was the next step. So this is this is right in the heart of that transition. Yeah, and th- th- my recollection of that is that Steve Jobs said, in a year, we're going to have three gigahertz. Mm-hmm. And I think he attributed it to IBM. But it was never clear to me whether IBM actually said that they would have that chip. I mean, Steve Jobs said they said that, but did they actually say it? Was it mentioned as a possibility and he just turned it into a certainty to try to pressure them to make it happen? Not clear, but, you know, it, it never happened, obviously. Never um, happened. The, the nice thing about this case, speaking of, like, you know, they changed the inside significantly, they also changed the outside. Like, they, uh, you know, they made the design flexible enough that you could change stuff like, hey, what ports does it have on the front? What ports does it have on the back? Where are the ports on the back? Where are the fan holes in the back? How many fan holes are there in the back? Like, design was flexible enough that more or less the same design, if you squint them, they all look like cheese graters. But if you look close, they're like, wow, there's totally different ports on the front of that. And wow, they changed where the air exits on the back. There used to be two fans like this, and now there's three fans like that. And now, now this is on the top, and now this is on the bottom. They move stuff around a lot. Um, they, you know, the front stayed, like, the ports were always in the same place on the front. And they had room to kind of mix it up. The back changed much more significantly. Um, but I, I think it was a really smart design where they could reuse in car parlance most of the panels from computer to computer. They could reuse the manufacturing technique. And when they wanted to change the ports, that's just like drill different holes. That's basically what it boils down to. So really smart design. And the insides significantly changed. They changed where everything was. Power supply used to be on the bottom. Then it moved elsewhere where the CPUs were, where the RAM was. You know, how things slid in and out of it, how things socketed in, how many fans there are, how the fans were inserted and removed. You know, they got rid of that clear door pretty quickly, too. Lots of flexibility for a computer that from the outside just all looks the same if you squint. Now, you had very smart uh, case design, and I hope hope they've done something similar with the new one. Now, you, you had one of these for more than a decade. No, wrong computer. I had my Mac Pro for... Well, I mean, you had a, you had a cheese grater. Yes, I had the for more than Mac a decade. That was replaced replaced in two thousand eight with a Mac Pro, which was replaced in twenty nineteen with a Mac Pro. And I think it does. Does it say something about the the validity of the design choice of the Power Mac G five that after their kind of wilderness years with a trash can Mac Pro that in the I had the, I had a moment when the rumor was that the new Mac Pro was finally going to come. Uh, at WWDC, where I said, I, I don't see how it's not a cheese grater again. Like, different, but but a cheese grater again. And and it just seemed like the Power Mac G5 design, like, 
they they hit on it like this is this is what this computer should look like and they carried it through the entire life of that that Mac Pro until they brought out the trash can version and now you've got the next generation of that industrial design but it's you know it it definitely shows its lineage yeah, the, the basic tower form factor sort of pioneered, like, you know, the early days of the IBM PC, they were horizontal and you put your monitor on, you put your CRT on top of them, but there were also tower computers that were vertical and you'd put them on the floor and you had some more flexibility there because you could just go up higher and higher and wider and wider and your monitor was a totally separate concern. It didn't have to hold the monitor on top of it. It didn't have to sit on the desk in front of you dominating all that space. So you had more flexibility. That basic tower design has stood the test of time. Apple really committed to it i mean they've had many towers but they really really committed to it with the with the g3 and g4 and after that of saying we're going to have a distinctive like this is not just going to be a a horizontal mac turned up on its side which some of the first ones were particularly the the quadra 700 right yeah where they couldn't decide whether it was horizontal or vertical let's move the feet Um, yeah uh but that that is a is a smart design for a product it fulfills the needs of a lot of customers like it's not rack mounted, but people also aren't going to put it on their desk. It's extremely flexible because it's a big rectangular solid where you can stick a lot of stuff. And practically speaking, during the whole time they've been selling this, computer cards are a thing that slide into your computer and cards can be long. So the case has to be long too. Right? There was, you know, half height cards or whatever. Just just make it a big rectangle where you can stick stuff. And then cold air in the front, hot air at the back, tried and true design that they eventually really committed to with the Power Mac G5. Before that, that's more or less how things happen. Sometimes cold air right. went in from the bottom, but mostly shot out the and, back. And how do but we make it look like, distinctive? It's not, not pussyfoot around. And it's perforated, you yeah. know, perforated metal in the, on the front side, so looking at it from the front, which is probably how you're looking at it. I actually had a desk with a tower cut out in it, and that's where my Power Mac G5 lived for the whole time that I had it. And then um, and that was that was the thing that made it look the most distinctive, um, just going away from the plastic version, and and to this day, now now you are using a computer with kind of carefully machined, probably expensively machined holes with holes in them and things like that. But still, you know, the idea is it's that it's a it's a box for a computer, but with something to make it have that Apple style and look distinct. Yeah, and they spent so much money on this new fancy Mac Pro case. I can't imagine them not using it for at least a decade. You know, yeah. they're going to keep making tower computers. They're not going to do another case design. The, again, the insides could totally change. The number of ports could change. Everything about it could change, but it's going to be a big holy tower thing with handles on it. Yep. We'll be living with it for probably about as long as we lived with the old one. Long time. Let's talk about, if you have thoughts, about the uh, Macintosh PowerBook Duo. PowerBook Duo is hard to explain to people who weren't there when it happened because if you actually present someone <laughs> with this computer, it looks comical, mm-hmm. right? It, you know, like all notebook computers from our past, it's huge by today's standards. And you can't really explain to them, this was so tiny, it was mind-blowing. <laughs> this laptop was so small. And because it was so small, we were all willing to accept the fact, we're like, okay, but it's it doesn't have lots of stuff on it, but it's so tiny. Like it doesn't have hardly any ports. It's got this weird proprietary connector on the back. And the the fact that there weren't the usual connectors that you would expect on a portable Mac computer was okay. Like you didn't have, I don't remember which ports were on it, but like you would expect to have a floppy drive, for example, that wasn't there. And, you know, an, an ADB port and 
maybe a, a, a parallel port or something, not a parallel port, but, you know, the, a printer port or a VGA port or something like that. But there's just no room because this computer is so darn small. Uh, and then it's like, okay, well, if you have none of these ports, how is this going to be useful? It's like, well, uh, if you're if you're in a situation where you need more than the very limited amount of uh, ports that this computer has, just fold up this tiny computer and shove it into this big slot and this like garage type thing and this expensive creaky mechanism will try to suck the laptop out of your hand and jam its giant multi-pin back connector into this plug inside it and then suddenly you have a desktop computer because this thing has a power supply and a floppy drive and all the ports that you would expect and a monitor port and then you could put the monitor on top of it and that's the duo dock and so you had the best of both worlds you amazing college professor who can afford this very expensive computer would have such an incredibly tiny laptop when you went to the cafe and had deep thoughts, right? And then when you come back to your professor's office, you would have a full-fledged fancy Mac computer. There was even, I believe, like a second CPU or something inside the dock thing to try to make it faster or a coprocessor or something like that. Um, yeah, it was it was ambitious. It was technically amazing. The only reason I knew anybody who had one was because I knew, like, you know, people who were essentially college professors and later actual college professors when I was in college had this computer. And I can tell you from supporting people who have it, it wasn't a great computer. <laughs> like, the laptop was really small, slow and small. The track pa- trackball was very strange and recessed, and the buttons were small. And when you docked it, it wasn't really as fast as a good uh, desktop computer and when you use it as a laptop it wasn't as good as a good power book and it was you know it seemed like the best of both worlds but it really wasn't particularly good at any of them but it does stand out in history as a place where apple really you know shot for the moon and said we are we want to make the best of everything and we're going to build it all ourselves and i think there's a pretty good reason there was never another computer like this from apple the concept of a dock for your laptop like a big garage thing with extra stuff just didn't work out. I bet it didn't work out economically because it was so complicated and had so many different parts and software support for it must have been a nightmare. And for the users, it didn't work out because it just you just would have rather had a good laptop and a good desktop back in the day. Yeah, I think the most notable thing about the Duo, I mean, other than the fact that I had a dock that you kind of inserted it in like a like it was a videotape and a VCR, which people also don't know now what that is. Um, it was that. Um, you know, it was r- remarkably thin and light, not by today's standards, but for the time, it was, you know, almost half the weight of the PowerBook at the time. So it was what it said it was, but um, the compromises were, you think the MacBook Air was compromised. The Duo was all about compromises for the people who wanted a thin and light laptop in the 90s. Did it even have an apt- active matrix screen? I forget. I think it. I think some of them did, and some of them didn't. Yeah, yeah again, that's it's hard to explain because like this was so thin and light, but it is. It you could put like what let's say three, four MacBook Airs stacked on top of each other with alternate alternating the fat side right <laughs> into the space of this thing. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, Xserve and also old weird Apple servers. XServe is a time in Apple's history of hardware and software where it seemed like Apple believed that it could do anything, right? You may think Apple trying to make a car, as it was rumored to have done, is more representative of that, but this is these are things that actually shipped. 
Um, somewhere inside Apple, you can imagine someone had the idea that Apple should make servers at various times. Mm -hmm. Someone has had that notion. Uh, and this time they had enough wherewithal to say, uh, this is what servers are like these days. We can't make, just make like a desktop computer that's a tower and tell everybody it's a server. That's not what it's like. People have server racks. Let's make an actual rack mount server. Yeah. And Steve, clear that it's, Steve Jobs God. stood up on stage and said, you know, the only company that ha does what we're doing here with servers is Sun. And we, he said he was humble in his Steve Jobs way. Like, well, we've got a lot, of, a lot to learn. But also he was like, but also we're Apple and we're awesome is the implication there. And uh, it was not, the first time they did it, but it was definitely the Steve Jobs era. So many of the the excesses of the 90s, Apple learned their lesson and didn't repeat them when Steve Jobs came back. This is not one of those. Because around this time, they were making really good hardware and had software that people were enjoying. And had OS X yeah. with Unix underneath, which gave them a server right. story that they didn't have before. Right. Like, you can see the same pitch being made at every point in Apple's history of whatever the server tech of the day was. And Apple would just say, that's not really what we do. Like, maybe if you're telling me this will be like something that'll be in an office, you know, like an office server or something like that. But like a data center thing, like a rack mount data center type server, that's not really what we do. I know we have a Unix, but we don't make machines like that. Um, and it really doesn't play to a lot of Apple's strengths because in general, people don't care about the uh, beauty of the hardware that's in the data center. This is, you know, granted, Sun, I think, always made pretty good-looking hardware. Lots of these Unix, Unix uh, computer vendors, especially server vendors, fancied themselves, uh, you know, daring industrial designers. You know, SGI would have their purplish machines. Sun had a, had an aesthetic or whatever. But practically speaking, they were all pretty cheap. Like, even SGIs, you buy a computer for 35 grand and it would have the chintziest plastic you've ever seen, sort of like ugly purple molded plastic fronts on these computers not not high quality not expensive looking again even the, com the computer costs more than a car um <laughs> apple made this xserve and it looked like a beautiful apple computer like if apple had you know it's one of those things like if apple had designed your you know lawnmower what would it look like if apple had designed your car what would it look like we almost found out um if apple designed your server this is what it would look like beautifully designed like an Apple-ish interpretation of a server, mostly pointless because no one cares what it looks like. But Apple going the extra mile also made the insides beautiful and not just beautiful in terms of, yes, it looked very neat and clean and everything was where it was supposed to be, but they tried to make it modular. Look how easy it is to swap out these components. And we've studied, you know, the people who are doing this project know about the industry and say we need to have redundant power supplies and redundant fans and all the things that a good server is supposed to have. Um, and they were also good about like, well, we don't really care about the noise because in the data center, everything's really noisy. So they didn't really brag about how quiet these were. And practically speaking, many of them were very, very loud. Probably the loudest computers Apple has ever made. Absolutely. But it's fine because it's in the data center. Um, but yeah, as it turns out, people don't really want to run Mac OS in the data center. And if people aren't going to run Mac OS on it, they're not going to pay what are the very high prices for the server as compared to an equivalently powerful Dell 1U server that looks ugly but is twice as fast for a quarter of the cost so in the end probably not a good idea to pursue this like the, the sort of the business case for making this makes sense right up to the point where you say yeah but who are the customers right it is a beautiful product like i think it is a really nice one u server it's just that like no no one wants to run mac os 10 in a rack like and, and part of it is apple's fault because they never made mac os 10 server a thing that people wanted to get like they never 
made a really headlong run at Microsoft saying, we're going to don't buy exchange from Microsoft. Don't make all your employees run out. Look, run Mac OS, Mac OS 10 server and we'll do all your email and we'll do all your count calendaring. And they, they tried to leverage open store source stuff for their open directory calendaring. And they had their mail stuff and they had a backup server. And it was just miles from being able to compete with the, with the giant death star that was, was and is the Microsoft office suite for the enterprise that people might want to run on a server somewhere. Apple had nothing to compete with that. So no one had any reason to run these servers. So they just end up being a beautifully designed uh, curiosity. Well, and Macs still exist as servers in a data center, but the, the truth is that people will repurpose, whether it's a Mac mini or a, a Mac pro or something else, they'll, they'll just put consumer essentially non-server hardware, let's say into the data center and do what they want. And I've had a I've had a Mac server in my house for years now. It was a G3, and then it was a G4, and uh, then it was a power computing clone, and then it was, I think, a Mac Mini, and it's another Mac Mini now. But, you know, that that's the kind of servers that that still exist. The rack-mountable thing. I Also, I remember their whole pitch about OS and server and all that. And it just, it was not, even in the places where they were strong, like education and in creative areas, the uh, there were just always better choices. And the main the main use case that is served today, I imagine, and could have been pitched then for having Macs in the data center is essentially to have them be like the Mac that is sitting in front of you, but not in front of you. So if you need to run a bunch of builds or you need to test your you know program on a bunch of different CPUs or hardware, that's like people like to have sort of farms of Macs, but they're doing them as sort of a a compressed multiplied version of having a bunch of desktop Macs. Like they're, they're tiny consumer Macs. Like you want to, you know, I want to run five different versions of, of Mac OS and I want to have them all available to me for me to test the build of my program on, or, you know, right. You want them to be Macs, but you can't actually fit five Macs on your desk. So if you put them in a data center and a remote desktop into them, now you can use them like they're desktop Macs. That's not how servers work. People don't buy servers to use them as if they're a bunch of computers sitting in front of them. They use them to run server software. And I just don't think the use case was there, again, partially because of Apple's uh, software gaps, right? But today, if you are if, if you're using a bunch of Macs in a data center, chances are very good that you're using them to like run Xcode or something that only runs on Macs. Because if you weren't, you would never choose to do that. Like you would there are cheaper ways to run software right. in the data center than to run them on Mac OS. Well, and the argument is also like, it, it's a server, but, you know, nice, because it's from Apple. It's more expensive, but nice. And the people who are choosing the server and choosing to maintain a server for a, a work group or whatever, they don't care. They don't care. I mean, that's, that's the truth of it is Apple's secret sauce has a lot to do with users touching the hardware and loving that user experience. And that magic doesn't work. This is why in the 90s, Apple released Shiner, the workgroup server, which ran Unix from IBM because they wanted, and in that case, they wanted the money, the big margins of selling a server, but they knew it needed to be on based on somebody's standard. And even that didn't work, but that was what they were trying. Yeah, that was before Mac OS X, so you just couldn't, like, if you wanted to run a quote-unquote serious server right. of some kind, it had to run Unix, something that wasn't going to crash, it had to be rebooted, like, you need memory protection, right? You need all of that modern stuff, and Apple didn't have it. Like, they had AUX, but there was even less of it, you know, so they had a partnership with IBM, they put AX on it, yep. which was actually the first version of Unix that I used, because it's what my university used on our computing cluster, so I actually was familiar with AX. 
in my first job out of school, we got one of these computers. Apple gave it to us. Uh, that's how that's how much they were trying to get rid of these things. No one wanted to buy them. A work, a work group server, the, a shiner. Yeah, yeah. Apple Apple networks Ooh. Apple network server. Yeah, network server. Um, right. And yeah. yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't rack mountable. But it, no. and it wasn't a tower. It was like it was like a small refrigerator, like a dorm fridge. I was going to say it was like a really <laughs> big laser printer, is how I remember it. It was a very large blob, very large box. Yep, it had tons and tons of bays, like full height bays. We used to call them for for you know hard, giant old hard drives to go in there. It had like this backplane design where there's this big board that plugged into a backplane, uh, where the rest of the computer was. Uh, it had wheels. Uh, even before the current Mac Pro, here was a Mac with wheels on it. It had actual wheels. They weren't optional. I think they came on all of them. It looked a little bit like a Dalek when you when it rolled around because it had this little skirt <laughs> where the wheels were. Um, it had an LCD screen on the front, yep. and there was a command you could run from the Unix command line that would change the text on that screen. And yeah, at, at my office, Apple gave us one. I don't know why. Like we weren't. <sighs> we were a startup. We had five people. I guess they knew someone in Apple. We got it, and it's like, okay, well, what the hell do we do with this? Um, other than me playing with it a lot, I mean, we could run Unix software on it. We were running Apache, and you could compile and run Apache on AAX. Um, and we were running Perl, and you can compile and run Perl on AAX. So we could run our website and, and software and our CGI scripts on the thing. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I could put messages on the screen. Uh, but practically speaking, it was just in our office. Our servers, on the other hand, were actually in a data center somewhere, and this never went to the data center. I don't know if you could go to the data center because it wasn't rack-mountable. Um, I suppose they could just roll it in there somewhere, but it was weird and expensive and less familiar than the servers we were already renting in our data center. So it just stayed in our office as a curiosity that I played with, and that's, you know, it, it never it never actually served any customer traffic. I suppose I used it to do development work, so I could have development work a little bit closer to me, but that's... Boy, what an ill-advised product! Because if you didn't think anyone was going to run an XServe, you know, years later when Apple actually had some kind of offering to run like Calendar and shared home directories and an email server and all the things you would expect a server of the era to do, and a Unix-based operating system, Apple had all of that, and the XServe still didn't work. This is back when Apple had basically none of those things, and so it was basically just selling a really funny-looking IBM AX computer that everybody knew in their bones was not going to be supported for a very long time. So I feel bad for everybody who bought one of these things, but boy, what a, what a strange machine. If there ever was any kind of like, you know, drawing like a, the envelope of, of computers, you know, along of Apple computers along different axes, uh, you know, like size, weight, uh, <laughs> capacity, form factor, uh, you know, like there's just so many things about this computer that are singular, right? <laughs> right down to the fact that it's not even running an Apple operating system. Such a weird thing. All right, we need to talk about Blackbird. We need to talk about the 500 PowerBooks and the also the PowerBook 5300, which was the sort of the PowerPC transitional form uh, that followed. People, the whippersnappers today, John, they think that the whole butterfly keyboard thing is, is a good example of an Apple laptop disaster. And all right, fair enough, yes. But... I think this I, I think these laptops were were the biggest disaster up until that point where they Apple managed to squander all the love that they had generated from the hundred series PowerBooks and for a couple of years basically made products that were 
that uh, promised less than they delivered when they weren't exploding. Yeah, let's just reflect for a moment on the fact that they wasted a very cool code name, Blackbird, which reminds you of the SR-71, a very cool airplane. They wasted that name on this computer. And the thing is, the name mostly fit. Like, the plastic was a darker black, I think, yes. than the ones that had come before yes, it. And dark it chocolate cur- versus light chocolate, milk chocolate, right. yep. It was curvy, like the curved front was like, ooh, it's modern and curvy, and yeah. it was modular and interesting, and sometimes caught fire and that's not good (laughs) it's not good for the plane the blackbird it's really not good for a laptop i have to say though um the whole catching fire thing uh you know it's a hazard of anything with rechargeable batteries and electronics and yada yada but uh, unlike the butterfly keyboard apple reacted to it pretty quickly and it's not like this was a problem with all of apple's laptops for the next three years not that i'm bitter well uh, pretty quickly only in relative terms because the the power so the powerbook 5300 which was the power pc version it was actually not it was the it was the upgrade to the powerbook 500 series um except it was more boxy um it removed a bunch of features that were in the 500 series which is like the not not the right way to go and in the heyday of cd-roms it uh its removable storage bay was too small to fit a CD-ROM. So that was brilliant. But they ship with this this Sony lithium-ion battery, and a bunch of them caught on fire, and they had to recall them all and replace them with nickel uh, metal hydride batteries, but which were 70% capacity. So, like, it was, yeah. But no fire, so that's a plus. But no fire. And it took... You know, it, it did take time to roll that out. And also there was a, um, the software was buggy. Um, they they released software that was, uh, that caused it to break. Like MacWeek claimed that it was one of the worst reviews they had ever given a, an Apple product. And it took them five months to release the fix for that problem. Five months. Yeah, that's another thing that's hard to remember that like, Depending on what, you know, the, the Apple would ship slightly different operating systems with slightly different drivers with each of its Macs. Uh, eventually it was called like enablers, but there was, you know, even before that it was like the software, you'd get like the install disks for the operating system that came with your computer. And if you were to take that hard drive out of your Mac and stick it into another Mac for a very long time, that it would not boot that other Mac because it didn't have the drivers right. to the specific hardware. There was lots of very bespoke stuff. So all that meant is that if you got unlucky and the drivers for your particular weird hardware were buggy, uh, your computer would be a disaster. Like, yeah. Because, you know, known memory protection, anything goes wrong, the whole thing hard freezes, you reboot the thing, and it really could be. It's like, well, that doesn't happen on my computer. It's like, yeah, because we're basically, you know, we're running totally different drivers because whatever weird hardware is in my laptop has no relation to whatever weird hardware is in your desktop, and your drivers are fine uh, because that computer's been around for a while, but I'm a brand new laptop that sometimes catches fire and all my drivers are screwed up. And... Yeah, you couldn't just do software update, so you had to wait for Apple to do something and then buy an update on floppy disks or whatever. So, and it was the capper on the 500. So, so the positive thing about the 500, um, this is where many, many people first discovered what a trackpad was for the first time because the 100 codename series Midas. codename Midas, little spinning trackball on the PowerBook 100 removed, replaced by something good. And digging through the archives, I did get a chuckle at seeing all of the different magazines try to explain what a trackpad is mm-hmm. since, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's stuck in the end. It's stuck. 
Yeah. Comically small. Like by today's standards, you look at it, it looks like yep. a joke. Like that's the trackpad. Is that like an opening through which I can view the trackpad? Like <laughs> that's the whole trackpad. It was like two and a half inches square or something. It was so small. I mean, yep. and the, the thing is, the screens were smaller too, but not that much smaller. Like, first of all, the screens were still uh, landscape oriented. They were wider than they were tall, but the trackpad was basically a square or possibly taller than it was wide. And, and you know, and the material, there was sort of like this plasticky material mm-hmm. that would gather your finger dre- grease very effectively. You know, we've come a long way. With no gestures. No gestures yeah. either. It was really just one finger on it, which one, means... One it, finger at a time. Yeah. And a huge button. A huge physical button that mm-hmm. you press down and went click. You couldn't press on the trackpad. Yep. That's exactly right. Also, the Blackbird series, I, I should say, so two battery bays, but you could actually take out a battery and put other accessories in. This is part of the didn't live up to expectations or what Apple promised. They promised it would be PowerPC upgradable, which is like promising a future upgrade. That, so it's a PowerPCs are out, but this laptop isn't. But Apple says eventually you'll be able to buy one. So Apple's behind on getting PowerPCs to their laptops. They say they will do it. In the end, they they did ship PowerPC upgrades, but after third parties we're shipping them for the same computer, so it was basically kind of a flop. And they had this thing called the expansion module, which for 200 bucks you could plug that in, and then you could use PC cards. But in those days, which were like expansion cards from, P- from for people who don't know from PC, laptops, but I remember this era, they they didn't work. Like, they didn't work. They were four PCs, mostly they didn't have drivers, uh, the module didn't actually meet the full standard um, and so Apple, yeah, Apple rolls out these things and they look kind of cool, but they are incompatible. They're behind the times. They are making promises for future things that Apple couldn't deliver. Like it, this was for those who don't know how high Apple was riding with the PowerBook 100s. It was a huge product for Apple. Everybody loved the PowerBook. And then came these two systems and they're just terrible and f- just failures and it's amazing apple was allowed to make laptops after these guys yeah like the sort of the the industry defining power book it defined the, the the general shape of laptop computers to this day and then their follow-up was these turds right and yep. the other thing if people listen to this that think it sounds strange um apple has always had the reputation for having you know for being proprietary and sealed off and not as expandable and open as their competition, but everything's relative. So we just described this computer where Apple was telling you they're going to sell you an upgrade to change the CPU architecture of the machine, that it has modules that come out where you can choose to have one or two batteries and swap in a floppy drive. Like, what is that? Like, that that's, it sounds like the world's most expandable open computer. And it's all, this is all stuff that's supported by Apple. Um, that's true. Compared to today, this Apple was incredibly open, but compared to PCs of the day, you had to buy Apple accessories and therefore it was proprietary or whatever. But yeah, it took a long time to slowly, slowly whittle away at the the notion that personal computers had to be expandable and upgradable. Like my, my very first Mac was, you know, the original Mac 128K, and we upgraded it to a Mac Plus. Motherboard upgraded to a Mac Plus. Mm-hmm. They would take out the motherboard, take out the floppy drive, I think think they might have taken out the analog board i don't remember and stuff new guts inside my computer the front of the case was still the front of the original mac but the insides were from a mac plus uh that's not something that apple does you can't buy you know you couldn't buy an intel upgrade to your power mac g5 like you can't 
you can't even remove the batteries, let alone decide what kind of ports and drives you want in your laptop and make trade-offs like I want two batteries versus I want one battery and one floppy drive. But this was just the way the industry was. Like Apple was always on the proprietary side of the fence uh, just compared to its competitors, not compared to the modern world. And to their detriment, in this case, of trying to sell you a laptop that's going to do all these things and be power PC upgradable and have these swappable drive base but not anticipate the optical drive. So just there's a glaring, you know, gap. And as you said, having this be a follow-on to the, you know, nearly perfectly conceived and executed original PowerBook line that just, for their time, had all the right tech and all the right, you know, places and were just, you know, beautiful little machines. And for the record... Uh, the 500s were around about a year. The 5300 was around about a year. It was it was only a little more than two years, maybe two and a half years, between the introduction of the PowerBook 500 and the whole thing being wiped off the face of the earth with a new line of PowerPC PowerBooks, uh, primarily the 1400, which I had one of and was very good. So it was not as long a dark time as the butterfly keyboard, but... It wasn't great. Yeah, and I would argue that the Apple didn't really get back the greatness of the original PowerBooks until the tie book. Yeah, right? because they were, I know, agree. They were, they were certainly better after that, but it was just like, well, okay, now now I, this looks like a successor to the PowerBook, the original PowerBook lines, but it's not blowing me away. Yeah, I think that's fair. Blue and white G three. I loved. This computer, uh, I think a lot of people who live through this have a soft spot for this era yeah. of Mac hardware because it was it's the iMac era. We went from the beige boxes right to da- being daring and interesting and just you know yeah, having cultural impact. Cultural impact from computer design. It seems it seemed ridiculous at the time, but it was a real thing. Like you know, that's why you got. Uh, what do you call it like dust dust pans and brooms and irons that look like the iMac and the, the reason i love the power mac g3 so much is because apple a continued to make a quote-unquote professional computer the big tower computer in that form and b they didn't say this design that's for the iMac that's for the consumer models but the pro ones the pro ones are going to be serious slash boring we can't do that no mm. they took the exact same design language from the iMac, their you know flagship computer, uh, consumer computer, and applied it to their professional computers in a daring way. It wasn't like they took a box and just painted it teal, right? The handles, a hallmark of Apple's tower designs, introduced with this computer, and the fact that the you know they weren't just like a little one little handle or one or two. It was symmetrical, and it looked kind of... I always thought it looked kind of like the command symbol. It doesn't actually, if you look at the way command looks. But anyway, it was... From the side, it was like iconic with some curves and these organic handles going out of it. Uh, translucent plastic. Uh, G3 uh, on the side that you could see through the, the translucent case with the Apple logo and all that other stuff. The pinstripes from, uh, from the iMac. And that, in the end, it was also a very interesting capable tower design the big door that comes out on the side you can see all the guts of the computer with no tools required again would be a hallmark of apple's tower designs apple had never done anything like that like the the one the one that came before this always cracks me up i don't remember it's on your list but the uh what was it it wasn't the power mark 9500 maybe it was it was the the beige g3 tower yeah the one that had a little tiny piece of translucent... Little green plastic. Yeah, seashell. Seashell. It looked like sea glass. Sea glass, green, frosted yeah. plastic. 
That was like Johnny Ive saying, "I'm here, I'm alive." Yeah, on on an absolutely 100% beige uh-huh. computer, right? And that thing was to open the side to get at it, but it was kind of you know hard to get in there, and the door came off. But there was lots of sharp metal bits, and just it wasn't yep. it wasn't like this. Whereas this thing, you know, Steve Jobs being the showman. Open it up, and here it is, and all the ribbon cables just fold down, and everything is all still connected. You can access the CPU, the memory, all the drives, the drive bays, you name it. And it, this computer was flexible. You could choose like uh, what, what you wanted in the drive bays. You'd get them eventually with a zip drive, I think, or maybe that was the G4, but you'd have the, yeah, you you know, the, the, drive, the optical sure. drive and the floppy drive, right? Uh, you know, different places for different cards in it and everything. I just love this. And and on top of all of that, their quote-unquote professional monitors also styled to match this computer. Yep. The big whale monitors with the with the weird tripod legs, which I love because it lets you slide papers under the monitor. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? In two different sizes, 17-inch and the, the giant 21-inch with cool design. They were basically shaped kind of like gumdrop iMacs with the cool sort of, you know, vents on the back those can you know as job said in many of his presentations they look really cool from the back like like the imax do today right but these monitors if you saw them on someone's desk you know the 21 inch crt was the size it was huge it was like a washing machine it was gigantic but it looked cool from the back because it was all teal and, and sculpted and had the the three little feet thing it was such a commitment all you know all the way down to the keyboard and mouse they came with such a commitment to say we're not reserving our best design just for the one we're going to sell a lot of, just for the flagship one that's on the, all the billboards on the road. We're going to make our professional products look just as good and be just as cool and have, you know, the same type of matched set of accessories to make you want to buy them all together and give us more money. Because if you buy our monitors, they're <laughs> hundreds of dollars more expensive than other monitors, but they match your computer. How could you not get it? So I, I had a, a Power Mac G3. It replaced my SE30, so it was a big upgrade in speed. <laughs> um, and I got the 17-inch model. I couldn't get the 21; just too expensive, and also probably would have crushed my desk. But yeah, it matched, and the matching keyboard and you know, the matching mouse was the hockey puck, so I had to get rid of that. But anyway, yeah. I had <laughs> the matching mouse. It did. It's not- Unusually for Apple in this time of transition, one of the funny things about the Blue and White G3 is it had an ADB port, so you could still use your old yeah. ADB peripherals, like your old mouse or keyboard, if you wanted yeah. to. Yeah, I did use my Apple Extended Two keyboard with this. This is back mm-hmm. before my RSI forced me to give it up. But yeah, it was it, it was like Apple has done in the present, even with some of its Pro computers, concessions to backward compatibility. The iMac Pro has USB A ports in the back of it. No, no other computer released at the same time as the iMac Pro had USB A ports on it. But they had them there because, you know, it's you might have USB A peripherals, and the whole point of having a desktop is for flexibility. So let's put a bunch of USB A ports in the back, and yeah, an ADB port. It was clearly transitional. It's like you might have some peripherals you want to use, and you could probably get an adapter from USB. But you know what? On this big tower computer, unlike the iMac, they just give you an ADB port. You miss the fun. I mean, this brought the fun to the Pro Max, but but uh, we, I feel like we've lost the fun. Yeah, I mean, I it, it's not that everything has to be fun. Like, I really like the sort of elegant design of the current pro hardware, or in, you know, in general, Apple's design you know, that the current aesthetic of their laptops and everything, even their phones. Even when you get like a, an iPhone product red or whatever, yeah, it's shiny red, but it's still very sort of austere and simple. Like, I I like that design ethos as well, uh, but I I feel like you have to be 
you have to be going for something. You can't kind of end up in the middle. And so this was very clearly the era where Apple was going to make everything stand out and be fun and shiny and lickable and organic from the software to the hardware. And I really enjoyed that. Um, I wouldn't object to a return to it, but a lot of the stuff that's, you know, is fashion that goes in, in waves. And there's also a practical aspect of it. There's a reason cars don't come with tail fins anymore. Tail fins were a fashion fad, but they're also not practical. They're wasteful. They get in the way. They can injure <laughs> injure people. <laughs> they, you know, you know, walk into your car, right? Like there, there is... There is an actual rational reason to say, let's remove things that are not necessary from our design and let's have a design ethos and a a fashion that fits with that, because practically speaking, that makes for a better product. That said, if there's any place for fanciful design, it's probably in a big tower computer that doesn't really move anywhere. So if Apple wants to get fanciful, I actually think if it's not just colors and finishes, doing it on the weird tower computers is a place you can do it. And arguably the weird holes in the front of the Mac Pro are kind of fanciful. Like they're not there for a reason. If you just made regular circular holes, the air would go through just as well. <laughs> There's no reason to make holes like this, except that it's beautiful and quirky. So no, it's not teal and pinstriped. Uh, and you know, it is basically just silver, but it is more interesting than it might have been. Um, but yeah, the Power Mac G3, that's a moment in time. Like I, I like, you know, bell bottoms or whatever. I, I think if you made a computer like that today, it would seem retro or it would seem like a callback to a bygone era rather than being forward looking. So I'm not, you know, asking for a return to that. But, you know, what is the next one of those things? What is the next fashion trend that Apple can kick off in computer design? I mean, that's not where that's not where things are at these days. Uh, they're more on the phone and tablet side. And there there's precious little space to innovate in terms of uh hardware design just because anything you add to it you know you put a tail phone on that iphone it's going to snag in people's <laughs> pockets mm-hmm. and they're going to hate you for it right so i'm not really holding my breath for a return to this era but i'll always i'll always remember it as a a moment in time when it just seems like everything apple was doing was amazing and fun and just you know stars were in all of our eyes this is back when the apple gave out do you remember this really thick stock posters of its hardware oh yeah at macworld expo. at every yeah at every uh macworld expo there would be like a poster giveaway at the end uh, and not just the end so like this i remember was this in uh the javits center i think i don't remember which macworld mm-hmm. it was maybe 2000 2001 i don't understand how they were even able to do this but because you know today it this would be a disaster, but they had these posters laid out flat, not rolled, laid out flat, stacked on top of each other. There's like two foot by three foot posters, a very thick, car- glossy cardboard stock showing their beautiful hardware and all these beautiful poses. This is the time of the uh, toilet seat uh, iBook and the iMac and, of course, the Power Mac G3. And they were just stacked in these like custom shaped bins and you could just walk by like people at Macworld Expo could just walk by and grab one can you imagine what it would be like if apple put out any posters like that for free at any kind of venue with a lot of fans it would be mayhem like people would be tearing them to pieces the people would be fighting to get them they would be gone in seconds and i remember just wandering by there after lunch and oh i gotta remember to grab a poster like uh, <laughs> and just pull one up and roll it up myself and put a rubber band around it. Yeah, boy, what a di- what a different time. Like Macworld the pace of Macworld Expo and the sort of genteel nature of all of the suit wearing business people wandering around the Javits <laughs> Center. It, it just it's not it's not a thing that exists anymore. Uh, and then like I remember there was a room that you could go to where they were demonstrating like 
Copeland, the developer released two of Copeland and it was crashing like crazy and they're showing it in a room and there's like there's like three or four people in there because who the hell knows what Copeland is or wants to see it. And Apple is showing you the unreleased future operating system and there's like not even enough people to be interested to fill the room. It's just me and like five other nerds watching someone reboot the thing over and over again. God, what a time. What a anyway, time. yeah, PowerMac G3. Yeah. <laughs> it was blue and white. Power Mac 9500 MP, I'm using this as a really surreptitious way to talk about how the Daystar Genesis MP basically invented multiprocessing on the Mac and then was absorbed into Mac OS. Yeah, these tower computers, the pre-handle tower computers, these computers did not have handles. Nope. Um, they have a, a soft spot, uh, spot in my heart. The I think the design probably peaked with the 950. Which was the more, I think it was 950, let me just Google this, which was the more squared off model of this, like the much earlier, more squared off model, am I remembering? Quadra 950. Quadra 950, yeah. Quadra 950 was was the best looking one of these, because I feel like the Snow White design language was incredibly solid. I love it. I love almost every computer they made in that design language. This was when they were starting to get curvier, and they didn't really know what they were doing themselves. Like the... It was they. They were on their way to the blue and white G3, but they didn't know it yet. They're on their way to the iMac, but they didn't know it yet. Uh, but they were still hanging on to the past. But anyway, I think they were very elegant and powerful computers. Lots of room to do lots of interesting things. Uh, and yeah, the Daystar MP. Like, it's it's hard to think about this, but like, it was an even many, larger beige box. By the way, I remember seeing one of the. We had one of these in Mac user, and the Genesis MP. It was just like imagine a Power Mac ninety five hundred, but like if if that was a, a a skyscraper, just you know, stick on many extra floors. It was just a huge box, uh, so you could stuff it full of stuff. But the really notable thing about it is that they had multiple processors in it. Processors, not cores, right? Processors. Yeah, like uh, a lot of the things having to do with Apple's advancement were actually things done by third parties, and Apple was dragged along kicking and screaming, both on hardware and software. Obviously, once Apple opened the door to cloning, it was clear that lots of people would be making hardware that is unlike Apple's. Uh, but like, can you imagine it's something as significant as supporting more than one processor not coming from Apple, but coming from a third yeah. party? And them writing their own sort of driver for an operating system that has no idea what to do with multiple processors. Like, so that, you know, programs like Photoshop is like, a third party makes this hardware. And they talk to Adobe who makes sure that Adobe's Photoshop understands the hardware so that you can run things twice as fast. There was a Photoshop plugin. There was a Photoshop plugin for multiprocessing that was for the Genesis MP and then ultimately was used in the 9500 MP. By the way, for the record, Genesis MP, um, it had dual and quad processor versions so uh, you could get two or four power pc 604 processors inside full-on processors and then one of them was the real one and the other sat there until an some piece of software called the api and and handed mm-hmm. data to them um, and that was the classic mac os multiprocessing api eventually and all this is happening without apple yes like, uh, third-party companies making the hardware and Adobe is making the software and the plugin to support it. And now here's Apple going, oh, that's a good idea. We should have just- <laughs> like, what are you doing, Apple? Like, you're just abdicating, you know, again, I don't even know what the equivalent would be, but it's like, it's like if the, I don't know, if, if the the first, uh, you know, 
camera support for the iPhone came from a third party and Apple didn't actually build a camera in. It's like, everyone knows this is where it's going. There's multiprocessor computers in the world. How are you letting a third party beat you to this? How are you letting Adobe and this third party work together? You know, and Apple's like happy, like, oh, we can buy this computer and run macOS. Look how fast you can run Photoshop. It literally runs the filters twice as fast because it's parallelizable operation and we have two CPUs or four or whatever, you know. But then, like, if you spent the huge amount of money for this and you spent your day not doing Photoshop, it just behaved like a single processor computer because that's what it was because the operating system, again, had no idea that other CPU was there until until something called one of these weird proprietary APIs and, and divided its work up amongst them. But, I, yeah, I love that. And then, and then of course, Apple just subsumed it, and that was it. Genesis MP cost ten grand too, by the way. So yeah, you know, yeah, ten grand in what nineteen ninety something, nineteen ninety five dollars, nineteen ninety four dollars. Yeah, yeah. Don't mm-hmm. do that conversion. No, I don't want to see it. No, no. Mac Mini. Mac Mini. Uh, I feel like this is unlike the X serve, where it's like it's clear that somebody inside the company wanted to make a server and sold Apple on it. And they tried to make the best darn server they could. The Mac Mini feels like like a business person saying, I can tell you what it is. I know why the Mac oh, Mini exists. The Mac Mini exists because this was right in the period where Apple was getting the iPod Halo effect. In their Apple stores, people love the iPod, and they wanted to get people to use a Mac. And they thought, somebody inside Apple said, if we could make a cheap Mac that they could plug into their PC monitor and keyboard and everything we could just switch them it was the switchers era and that was the word that everybody was using was switchers and the mac mini was i believe designed as the switcher computer and it didn't work out that way at all and it's amazing that it still exists because i think that was the initial conception is a cheap switcher computer and it was it was 499 i believe the lowest price for a new mac ever was that first one and then it didn't stay there yeah like that was certainly how it was it was presented when it you know when it, on stage like bring your own mouse and keyboard and had, right you know some acronym for it or whatever right but like the the business person's idea that the only thing stopping people from coming over to the mac like we got them in the store the only thing stopping them is they look at our prices and they're like whoa i'm not getting a mac look how much it costs to get literally any mac it's so expensive compared right. to you know, the, the PC hardware of the day. So we're going to make this extremely cheap computer. And this is not the first time Apple has tried to make an inexpensive computer. They had an entire line of computers whose initials were stood for low cost. Low cost, yes. Right? Uh, <laughs> but everything is relative in the Apple world. And then the Mac LC was not actually LC when compared to the rest of the computing world. The Mini was pretty cheap, but it was very bare bones. It was very small. It was very, very small and cute. But it just, I mean... Part of the thing you felt like you were getting with the Mac was the whole, you know, premium Mac experience. And if you just connect your crappy PC monitor, keyboard, and mouse to this beautiful little, uh, you know, rectangle, yep. it doesn't, I'm not sure you're getting all the premium experience that you thought you were paying for. I'm like, yeah. And, yeah. and it was it was slow for a Mac, but not too slow. Yeah. Um, but it like, was, it turned out people wanted to just buy an iMac and clear out the old crappy PC altogether. That's what people wanted to do. Yeah, like it, it, like this. A lot of this is like with cars. There, the experience of using a computer, uh, like what what it feels like. Am I using a, a a quote unquote nice computer, a good computer, a fancy computer? Has a lot to do with what you are touching with your hands and what you were looking at with your eyes. And the Mac Mini 
just threw all this up in the air. It's like, I don't know what you're touching with your hands, whatever garbage you got at home, whatever, whatever potato chip filled crappy PC keyboard and mouse or whatever you got. And what are you looking at with your eyes? Some cruddy monitor, like whatever part, you know, using a Mac, you got to see Apple's monitors, which in general are very clear and very, you know, beautiful, rich colors. Like from, from the days of the Trinitron on Apple's always had really good monitors and the peripherals look and feel nice. Uh, and, that's your experience of using the computer, especially a desktop computer. You don't spend much time looking at the desktop computer, especially if it's just this tiny featureless, you know, rectangle on your desk. Mm. So it really just, it didn't, it didn't fulfill. I feel like it didn't fill the, the promise to the customers Apple was shooting for, which is these people yeah. like the iPod, which is premium and cool looking and feels and looks nice. They love it because it is an Apple product they want you know what is the apple equivalent of computer well good news apple makes computers and this was not that this was like i don't know hearing the same music as your ipod but holding on to a zune but the mac mini ended up having i mean unlike other products that flop and then just disappear it turns out the mac mini did have a home it was just among mac i would say a lot of them is among mac users who wanted another mac a mac to put somewhere a cheap Mac as an extra, you know, in addition for a different part of the house or whatever. Like it has found a, a dozen, a thousand different little niches enough to keep it around all of this time. It's been 15 years and we still have the Mac mini. It's just not what it was conceived of. Or is yeah. It? Like what, what it ended up being was a second or third Mac for people who are already buying your very expensive regular <laughs> Macs. They're already buying your desktops. They're already buying your notebooks. And those people would love a tiny little Mac. Like it's a full real Mac, but it's so small. Think of all the things that I could do with this. Like if you have any kind of need to run Macs or Mac software, but you don't need it to be a full fledged computer, you want to fit it in a very small spot or whatever. There is definitely a market for this it is just not the PC switcher market. It is, it is like selling your third Mac to the same household. That's, that's who's buying a Mac mini. Or people sticking them in data centers because they're so darn small. They're so adorable, though. I love mine. Um, Mac 2. Here's your chance to talk about that design language. Mac 2CX and 2CI. Yeah, the the Snow White design language by, what was it, Frog Design? Yep. Who did it for Apple, uh, where... Even though people refer to them as beige, I always think of beige as having more yellow mixed in. Yeah, they're more they're more more gray. I would yes, say they're they're light they're gray, platinum. They're yes, platinum, platinum is what Apple Apple would call them, a silvery yes, platinum, except plastic. Much yeah. <laughs> and th- this design language started with the SE because the original the, the Mac, the five twelve, and the Plus were literally beige. They were brownish. They were tan computers. They were a similar color <laughs> to the Apple IIs, although they made platinum Apple IIs eventually too. But anyway. Um, the SE started this design language. SE30 continued it. The Mac 2 uh, continued along that. It was d- defined by this platinum plastic and these thin uh, accent lines and thin uh, slits for air. Very kind of Ferrari Testarossa, right? The the side strikes, if anyone knows what that car looks like. Um, very rectilinear, but with rounded over edges everywhere. I think a beautiful design language that, that Apple used to great effect for many, many years. And the 2CI and 2CX may be the pinnacle of that design in desktop and headless desktop computers. Um, they had all the elements. 
they were not huge like the two 2x 2fx like they weren't you know full width desktop computers that were i don't know how wide those things were but like two or three feet wide it was these were smaller like you don't need all the card slots and all the power of the two 2x or you know you just want a smaller computer and apple made uh, a line of monitors that exactly fit I remember the portrait display that's fit directly on top of the two two CX and two CI, so you could see a full page of text in your WYSIWYG editor. This is the kind of computer the senior person at the newspaper would have <laughs> to to do their work. It's not the super duper computer that you're laying out the whole paper on. Maybe that's a two FX if you're in a fancy newsroom. But you, like you've described senior... my college newspaper now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and it was an expensive computer and it was a good computer, but you just needed to run one or two applications on it uh, and you didn't want it taking up like your entire desk like those full width desktop computers I don't, I don't even know what you would call this like there was you know we didn't have the, the you know all the different sizes in the pc world the, you know atx and the the, the at and xt towers all that stuff um we didn't have words like that to define max because apple made whatever the hell they wanted but this form factor of a desktop computer that your monitor sat on top of it laid flat on your desk and the monitor sat on top of it but it was also trying to be small it was also trying to pull in its edges to not dominate your desk was another great moment in time before essentially that type of desktop computer fell out of fashion entirely Uh, but after apple had realized not everyone wants this huge thing on their desk all the time practically speaking on the inside especially the 2ci very powerful you weren't really sacrificing much of anything except for, except for expandability had all the ports you wanted had all the drives you wanted on it uh, had the internals that you wanted it was basically like if you didn't want an all-in-one computer and also couldn't afford the big giant super expensive one this is what you got yeah and if you wanted color CI. too great, i mean this is at this point you if you wanted a color mac you needed an external monitor which me meant you ne- needed a mac too and you could pop the top off too, and you know there was there was some cards in there, not not mm-hmm. huge, but there was there was room to get in there and change the hard drive and put in some RAM and put in an expansion card and whatever you want. I think you know I love these computers. I feel like this is a moment in time of like the the little Mac twos, the compact Mac twos are just such a great combination of power and flexibility and color. Just you know, and obviously this is the first kind of color Mac I ever saw. I was like, what? Yeah, and it was breaking the mold of like you know the all-in-one that you know the original Macintosh had defined that right that when you thought of Macs for the first several years of the Mac's life, that's all it was. Like that was the Mac, that little cute little thing looked like a little person, little handle on top, the whole nine yards. And obviously, the Mac Two broke that mold, and the Two CX and Two CI were like sort of pulling the Mac in the direction of stopping. It's not going to be that. It's not the Volkswagen Beetle anymore. It is not just literally this one car that we're just going to make forever. We are envisioning an entire line of computers fulfilling different needs, and we're going to have the flexibility to make Macs in all shapes and sizes. And Apple would continue to make Macs in all shapes and sizes. Uh, and depending on what size and shape they made it, sometimes some are more successful than others. This 2CX and 2CI were the perfect design for this moment in time for a certain kind of user. And the type of user was the most important type of user at that time. Like the desktop publishing revolution was, you know, a tractor that was dragging Apple along. It's what allowed Apple to sell these highly designed, beautiful, extremely expensive computers to people who use them to do their job, which at the time made them lots of money back when newspapers and magazines were really important. Uh, it was a great synergy of hardware, software, customer, and uh, and provider. 
could still see the slot, the, the, like, you know, the, the, whatever they are, the little ridges, the little, uh, troughs in the plastic on the top. It's like, it's very pleasant. I loved it. Yeah. It was very, it was very, that design language was clever in that it seems simple. Oh, so it's lines. You're saying it's lines? I'm like, mm. yeah, it's lines, but it's not just like take a piece of plastic and cut a big line in it. There was, there was levels to it. Like under, if you flipped it over, you'd see the lines were cut in, but then the lines didn't go straight through. There was a piece of plastic underneath each line. So if you were to try to put a string through it, you'd have to go in and then to the side and then around, right? Same thing with the slats in the front. Uh, you know, having, having again, much like a car, having the accent lines line up with the floppy drive, right? It's kind of like having the, the the character line on your car go directly through the door handles, right? Or intersect the wheel arches. It's It seems simple. You're like, oh, what a boring design. They just made a box and put pinstripes on it. But it's not. Mm. Like, doing that well is very difficult. Like, I think if you look at, for example, some of the latter-day computers that are trying to follow this design but were not made by designers who were as good the difference between the 2ci and like one of the terrible like performa models that ostensibly uses the same design like it is night and day the 2ci is a work of art some of those other computers were just misshapen mongrels that were also made of platinum plastic and had accents lines but not the same all right 20th anniversary mac (sighs) boy what 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 a what a diversion what what a sort of like you know i think about apple making a car apple making a rack mounted server like of all the things apple could make they decided we're going to make a computer to celebrate the 20th anniversary of our company and it's going to be the computer equivalent of a concept car it's going to look like nothing you've ever seen before. Cost is no object. Every good idea, bad idea that we think we have to make a future computer, we're going to throw them all in this thing, and you will not mistake it for any other computer. And it will look like like a prop and a sci-fi show. And they, and they did all that. I think the one thing they failed to do was make it a really good Mac because it's not. Like it has a lot of cool technology and there's a lot of, like a lot of concept cars, there's a lot of forward looking stuff, but the Mac 2 FX induced techno lust in computer users. It you if you knew the Mac 2 FX existed, you wanted it because it was powerful, it was big, it was intimidating, it was better than the Mac you have now. This computer, kind of like a concept car, it's probably better than the car you have now. But you're not sure you'd actually want to drive it every day because it looks kind of weird and it might be uncomfortable and you're not sure if every part of this computer is, you know, is actually better than your current computer. In fact, your current computer starts to look pretty good and feels fine compared to this thing. So even though, like, if you look at this computer, like, wow, look, it it ushered in the era of flat panel screens and having an all-in-one computer where the display and the computer are combined and using interesting materials and the first introduction of, you know, molded metal elements with the big foot and, you know, uh, emphasis on sound with the Bose system and leather. And there's a lot in this that if you, if you connect the lines on your giant, you know, yarn, red yarn board on the side of your room, 
you can connect this to all sorts of stuff in the modern computer. So the bottom line is, it is not really a, a, a computer that Mac users of the day really, really wanted to have, and they would, they would, they wouldn't think that like, oh, I would, I would replace my computer in a second with them because if you did, you'd be dealing with some weird stuff. You'd be dealing with this strange detachable trackpad thing and the big Bose subwoofer and the fact that it's basically laptop internals. Ugh, and it costs not... three times what a Power Mac 9500 costs. Oh, yeah, and the cost. Although, I and I don't remember if this is a real thing or not. Maybe you did research and can tell me. My recollection is that if you bought one of these at launch, a uh, uh, man, man with a tuxedo would come to your house yes. and set it up for you. That's like, what they said. <laughs> White glove service. But I, I think you're right that, you know, it, it did point to the future, but at the same time, it, it, it represents the one of the great excesses of 90s Apple, which is it's not a serious product. It's 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 a it's a product from their design lab, including Johnny Ive, that is a concept car that in in honor of the 20th anniversary of Apple, for whatever reason, they decided to sell but it like it doesn't make sense as a product. It never made sense as a product. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense as a design exercise. Like, do do you remember that issue of MacWorld that had? I think I'm assuming MacWorld paid for this, or whoever owned MacWorld at the time paid for. Was it Ziff Davis? I don't know who owned them then. Anyway, paid for some design company. Maybe it was even Frog it, Design. Paid yes. for a design company to make. It was like yes. What could what could future it was, Mac, what could future so Macs look like? MacWorld, uh, and it was IDG owned Macworld. It was when I worked at Mac user and I I do remember that issue, John. <laughs> they paid yeah. Frog Design. Frog Design and the Macworld editors decided that they needed to save Apple from itself by doing it a favor and designing new Macs for Apple. And they made they made models. Like they weren't working computers. They were just industrial design models yeah oh imagine if max looked like this yeah and, and then this they photographed it was attachable yeah. from that right uh this would have fit in perfectly there except this was a complete working computer that apple actually sold it wasn't just a weird looking case right yeah it was the design exercise that it, you know it's like and you filled it with real computer stuff it's like yeah i mean it's basically laptop stuff in there but and there was like that hunchback backpack you could mm-hmm. put on it to make it more powerful aka less slow but that sort of marred the design with this big hunchback that you would add to the thing what a mess like i'm glad that it let you know johnny ive and whoever was doing on the design team at that time spread their wings a little bit and try a bunch of things but even just a, even as a concept even like if i compare it to those frog design things this is not as cohesive as a lot of those foam rubber mock-ups that were in Macworld, right? If I look at the design elements and how it all fits together, it's a little bit of a mongrel. Like, just look at how this, the display sits in the whole rest of the thing with these little curved edges, and it just doesn't it doesn't hold together. Like, the fact that they couldn't decide whether the trackpad should be stuck to the keyboard or not, so you could do both, yep. and you could take the trackpad out of the thing with a little wire that dangled from it, and there was a remote control that did not look like an Apple remote control. I do not have fond memories of this computer. Cool and interesting, but like it's almost like it was made by another company. It's almost like Apple contracted it out to to Frog. I think Frog Design would have done a better job to some other company to make a concept car Mac, and they just stuffed a bunch of current Mac internals in mm. it, and then tried to sell it for a lot of money and pass it off as a celebration of Apple. We haven't even mentioned the fact that um, people think this was the 20th anniversary of the Mac, which it wasn't. It was of Apple, and it shipped. A year after the twentieth anniversary of Apple, <laughs> yeah, 
That may that may be the most Apple thing about it. Oh my god, ridiculous. Okay, that's all of them for now. All right. Well, dog barking aside, we did it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, you know, this project, I've been thinking of it as a solitary project for a while, but now that I've gotten to the point where I'm going to run out of weeks of the year to launch it, if I don't launch it in July sometime, probably, um, I realized that I was thinking about it and that I, I, I thought, I don't want to release this as just a, hey, every week I'm going to write an essay about an old Mac. I thought, I, I, we could do more with this. There could be something more. So this is my attempt to do that, which is get a bunch of voices, chop them up into little companions that go along with the essays, and I might do videos too. We'll see. But So thank you for being a part of it. Yeah, it's a good idea. I have been stressing about you running out of time to do it, so I'm glad you're finally <laughs> getting it together. Yeah, I wrote this. I wrote this thing where I explained how uh, you know important multiprocessing is in the long arc of history, and how uh, chips got faster. But there came a point in the history of computing when we realized that to really eke out the most performance gains, we need to start looking at having multiple processors or multiple processor cores. And I thought I would talk to you about that because I know you care about that stuff. Sure. I do. Sure. So, uh, you know, taking you taking you back to the '90s, like this was that moment, at least on the on the Mac side, where um, the guys in Georgia decided that they could build a multiprocessor card, and that there would be benefit in having the second processor, which the PowerPC designers had already decided was an idea because they had the 601 and then the 604 supported the concept of multiple processors on a system, um, and but what. Daystar did was write their API so you could send file or send jobs to the second processor, which is not, you know, not symmetric multiprocessing, but it was, it was something, but you know, I, I think this is what I wanted to talk to you about is more generally just the idea of going from, let us make the processor faster to how about more processors working together? Yeah. Multiprocessor was, inevitable on the mac and on pcs in general just because the processors were you know the, like whatever moore's law you could fit more transistors per right. unit area year after year after year right what are you going to do with all those transistors um if you can make last year's cpu even smaller the next year it'll be even smaller the next year it'll be even smaller uh you could have more than one of those cpus in there and plus especially in this market that they were uh selling to maybe someone's willing to pay for having two CPUs, right? It was it was always going to happen. And as you noted, CPU designers have anticipated this because there's a bunch of stuff you have to do as a CPU designer to make it more feasible to have two CPUs uh, in a computer at the same time, right? They have to sort of, you know, every CPU has its own little scratch pad of local information that it's keeping track of. But if you've got two CPUs in a system, now maybe there's something on one person's scratch pad and it's different on another person's scratch pad, but the people are CPUs here. And the CPUs need a way to resolve that. They either right. need to know about what's going on inside each other's things, or they need to have some way to invalidate each other's little local caches of things, or they need some, you know, or the operating system needs to understand that these are two separate worlds and really keep them separate. There's lots of different ways you can figure this out, but you have to do something, because if you don't, it's just mass chaos. Like, you'd send 
something to one processor and something to another, and they'd have no idea what the other one was doing, and it would just be a complete mess, right? Yeah, it's the man um, with two brains at that point. That's no good. Yeah, and so I think, you know, Apple would have eventually made a multiprocessor Mac, uh, just sure. because it's a thing that people wanted to pay for, and, you know, you, you could do it because you could fit two of them in there. You would just buy buy two of them and make the box bigger and make the power supply a little bit bigger and charge people more money. And there you go. But the tricky part is, you know, A, the CPU design and sort of that. But B, how does the operating system deal with having multiple CPUs? And it probably would have taken Apple a long time because classic Mac OS was not particularly well suited to have multiple processors, right? A lot of the stuff that of having multiple processors and multiple different sets of instructions going to the different processors, it, that's not kind of the way Mac OS worked. It was very regimented where everybody took turns in, in a single file line where you had to yield control to another application and the application had to yield control to the operating system. Like it was very, very primitive. Uh, it wasn't as if the operating system was playing traffic cop. An application could grab the CPU and just not surrender it. <laughs> and that, yep. you know, and if an application has that kind of power, you didn't have something in the operating system that was delegating and managing traffic and saying, okay, you're going to go there and you're going to go here and I'm going to put this process in the CPU and this process in that CPU. So anything that worked with classic Mac OS really benefited from a simple set of rules. And in the case of Daystar, I think they came up with a set of rules that is well suited to what was then a very popular application on the Mac, which is Photoshop. Yep. It's like, look, we have certain workloads that can benefit from being split over two CPUs. And a lot of those workloads the CPUs don't need to know what the other one is doing. So they don't need to constantly communicate. Because if you're processing a big image, you give a portion of the image to one CPU, a portion of the image to the other CPU, or you break the image up into chunks and you feed it into the CPUs, and the results are, you know, independent, right? Um, and you can make a bunch of APIs for doing jobs, saying, here, use our special APIs. And when you use these APIs, we'll take this job that you had and we'll divide it up across these CPUs according to how you specify the job. Very much in keeping with classic Mac OS of like, it's not a free for all where just now your computer is twice as fast or now you can run twice as many things. No, that did not happen. Right. It was, there is, we have two CPUs and you have to know they exist and you have to use these APIs and target them. And you do the work of figuring out what's going to happen on, you know, well, not that you're dividing the task up yourself, but you're making a task that is able to be split over two CPUs given the constraints of the system. Right. It's actually fairly limiting, but Daystar correctly estimated that, you know, even if it was only literally only good for Photoshop, it's still worthwhile because some people, the main thing they do with their computer is use Photoshop and they would love for Photoshop to be twice as fast and they will pay you a tremendous amount of money to do so, right? Yep. Um, for the history of uh, upgrades and, and driving forward with a lot of CPU power, especially in the 90s, was to get Photoshop to run faster, like bottom line. And people, and people would pay any price to get it to run faster because that you're talking about an era where running a filter could take half an hour even. And even if it's, even if it took 60 seconds, yeah. changing that to 30 huge like, would kill for that kind of, huge. you know, doubling in performance. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and I think probably the reason the day started before Apple is because Apple would look at that and say, well, if we do two CPUs, we can't just do it to like make one application faster. We, we need to make it so that two cpus means you can run twice as many things at the same speed or one thing twice as fast like we yeah, need, we need they, to benefit across across the board and they couldn't do it right like they yeah, were no. they were trying to build copeland at that point like they, they weren't also they would have needed to um you need to sell for apple to make a computer with multiple processors they needed to think that they were going to sell a certain amount of them and i think that i think that a very high-end expensive multiprocessing computer they might have been a little reluctant but 
you know, Daystar was more motivated and then Apple basically got the license anyway. So in the end, Apple did get this thing. But what they got is this API that you had to write specifically to to share the jobs. And it was not, you know, it, it was never really supported other than in some high-end pro apps because only high-end pros bought multiprocessing Macs. Yeah, and, and it could be that Apple was like, well, we'll like you said, we'll we'll worry about this when we have our operating system with preemptive multitasking, right? Because we will bake in the idea that now the operating system is the traffic cop, and it it understands that you know which which processes are allowed to run at which time and on which CPUs, and it can implement all sorts of policies. Because again, depending on how the CPUs communicate with each other, the operating system can decide like, okay, well. All you know, a, a single process always goes to a single CPU. So, like you know, process one is on the first CPU, and then it gets kicked off, and a different process goes on that CPU. But then later, when process one is ready to run again, it's sure to put it back on the CPU where it ran previously, rather than because that's how it works in a single processor system. If you get kicked off the CPU and something else, well, not kicked off, but if, if you yield control and another have a classic macOS and another application gets a CPU later when you're allowed to run again, of course you're going to go on the same CPU that you just ran on before. Because there's only one CPU, but when there's two of them, depending on how the CPUs communicate with each other, the operating system could choose to just put you on any available CPU. And if it's not the one you ran on previously, things may not be as you expect. Again, depending on how the hardware handles cache coherency and how the operating system handles, uh, you know, state restoration when you get you start to run again. It's, it's a very complicated topic, but classic macOS was completely unequipped to deal with any of this. Like it just didn't like it didn't have the notion of of protected memory. It didn't have the notion of separate memory spaces. It didn't have the notion of a preemptive multitasking where you actually get kicked off the CPU by the operating system. None of that existed in classic Mac OS. So multiple CPUs was definitely uh, not a good fit. Um, and as for the difference between like multiple CPUs versus multiple cores and a single CPU, that all comes down to Moore's law again, right? Now with Moore's law makes a certain amount of progress you can manage to have two of them in there because you can make them cheaply enough and they're small enough and then, you know, they don't, they don't take up so much power that you can make two entire chips and stick them in there. But as Moore's law continues, eventually like, well, why do we need to, like that thing with two CPUs and having them snoop on each other's contents and understand what's happening in the other CPU and the operating system delegating between them. It's like, well, wouldn't this be easier if these two CPU cores actually shared like a larger single batch of scratch space, you know, a single you know, L1 cache, a single L2 cache, a single L3 cache, or at least had, or at least were closer to each other so they could snoop each other's caches more efficiently or otherwise were just, you know, more closely wedded than a CPU that we can sell separately. But also if you put a second one in, they know about it communicating with each other. If we just shove them all on the same die, then it's a lot easier to work out how they're going to cooperate because it's literally one thing. But until Morris Law had progressed to a certain point, it's like, well, you can't put two entire CPUs on the same die. It would be huge. We, you know, the bigger you make the CPU, the more expensive it is to make, the more difficult it is to make. You, you don't want to make, you know, this giant, sometimes the wafer size is a limit, you know, the, the big circle thing they always show that they hold up. Right. That may be a limit in how big you can make the thing. But as the size of transistors gets smaller and smaller, eventually you say, you know what, we can actually put two entire CPUs on a single die reasonably economically because we can make things half the size that we used to be able to, right? We used to be able to make that one chip that was this big. Now in that same space, we can fit two entire chips, right? And that just progressed until you could fit three and four and five. And again, it's much more efficient and straightforward to have the multiple CPUs on a single die because then you build them to work together from day one. And they don't have to work independently. They only work together, right? So then you can divide up the resources, decide what resources are shared versus what resources are exclusive for every single one of the CPU cores. 
and everything just works out better. So the multiple CPUs was the first step in that direction. It was before transistors were small enough that you could economically make a single die, you know, for a PC class machine with multiple CPU cards. But it was after things had shrunk enough that like, I think we can, I think we can put two in this computer. And it was also after the sort of multiprocessor resolution revolution where all of the fundamental technologies required to sensibly have two CPUs working inside the same computer had been worked out. Like, you know, there we have techniques for doing it. We have schemes for sharing or not sharing various scratch spaces and snooping into the other C- what the other CPU is doing and invalidating something the other CPU is sharing the bus to the single pool of memory, sharing uh, access to I.O. and all the, all the other things. Because like, everything else in the computer is still just one of, right? And if you look inside the computer, it looks like a regular Mac, only in the place where the CPU was, now there's two of them. But there's not two of everything else, right? So all that sharing had essentially been worked out in, in larger tiers of the, the computer market, workstations or whatever. So everything was poised for there to be a multiprocessor Mac, but the operating system wasn't ready. Like, like you know, the story of Apple's life, their yeah. software wasn't ready. So Daystar didn't care. So the software is not ready. We can do something, and we're going to do it, and here it is. And it, it um, was, you know, better than nothing. I, I wanted to say, though, that one of the things that really, like, there was a period where a faster computer just literally meant a faster processor. And... I really feel like the seeking out of multiple processors and multiple processor cores was in part driven by the fact that, you know, the chips weren't getting fast enough, fast enough. (laughs) And that the, the, it was like, well, how else can we make a computer faster? And the answer was more processors or more processing cores. And as the clock speed growth diminished, like you saw this with Intel, right? When when the Intel transition happened, there was like the core solo, but that, that literally was the first multiprocessor or multi-core system I owned was a uh, the first Intel Mac I owned. Um, and that was what Intel's way of getting more processor power inside each processor that they sold because they couldn't really increase the, uh, the, the, the clock speeds on those processors as quickly, but they could architect multi-core processors. So the interesting thing about the Daystar computer is that in the, the Daystar MP came out at a time when we were still in the easy phase, where year after year you would make you just increase the clock speed essentially, increase how fast someone turns the crank on the CPU, right? In addition to all the other stuff that we would do, we'd say, oh, and also by the way, we're turning the crank fifty percent faster, right? And turning the crank faster is the easiest way to get performance up to a point. It's like, well, you've got a stream of instructions, and I process one instruction in this amount of time. What if I process two instructions in that same amount of time just by turning the crank faster, like on a little, you know, machine or like Lucy mm-hmm. with the chocolates coming down the conveyor We'll just make it go faster and faster. It's so easy to get the performance that way until you eventually hit a limit. But the MP, the Daystar MP, was way before we hit those limits. Like that was a 200 megahertz processor. It would be a long time before we sort of found the ceiling of megahertz speed that we can make CPUs go without big compromises like, you know, three and four gigahertz itch right this is 200 megahertz it's not even one gigahertz it's not even one fifth of the way to one you know it is one fifth of the way to one gigahertz right so we were still in that period but the thing is they couldn't say okay well we've got a 200 megahertz processor next year we'll have a 500 the leaps were incremental right it wasn't they couldn't they, they weren't doubling clock speed every year right they were making progress and it was great and it was an easy win but if you really wanted to do that photoshop filter at half the time if you wait until next year, you could do it 25% faster, 30, 40, 50% faster, but not 200% faster. If you want to do it 200% faster, you need a second CPU because images 
are nice, uh, you know, you can process them in parallel, right? There's plenty of pixels to go around, and you're going to do the same operation to all of them, and so you can just break the image up into pieces and, and hand the pieces out to one, here's one piece for one CPU, one piece for another CPU, and just do that, and you can literally do it twice as fast. So it's a, what they call an embarrassingly parallel problem. Hmm. Where it's really easy just to break it up into pieces, and there's not a lot of dependencies between them. And if you wanted that kind of performance boost, you could wait four years for a doubling in clock speed or three years, right? But you could have it today by just putting a second CPU in. So that's what they did. Now, eventually, they would, you know, you'd ha- you have problems that can't be broken up like that. Like, well, certain things have data dependencies between them. They're not embarrassingly parallel. You need to get the answer to this first part before you can feed that answer into the next part and then feed that answer into the next part. And you have dependencies all down the chain. Um, and you can't just, you know, parallelize that. So we really do need to make the CPU itself faster. And for years and years in the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, every year the CPUs got faster and faster until roughly about the Pentium 4 when the things they were trying to do to make the clock speed faster started to have detrimental effects. Like, to, you don't want to get into the details of what it takes to get make, make the CPU faster, but you need to do a bunch of stuff internally in the CPU that looks like it's making it less efficient. It's like, yeah, it's less efficient, but we're going to go, we're going to turn the crank so much faster that it won't matter. Uh, and we got to the point of diminishing returns there. So that was the point where they said, okay, well, what, you know, now we've actually reached the end of the road and just turning the crank faster. Now we have to, everybody needs to deal with this parallelism. And one more concept that you're not going to be for your podcast, but just for your edification. Yes, please. This is, uh, an exciting topic. So when you've got a set of instructions where you, you know, in, in in chunks, more or less, you need to do this and get an answer, and that answer gets fed into the next step, and that answer gets fed into the next step. Where you have data dependencies, and you can't just farm them off to be in parallel. Uh, in CPUs, there's such a thing as instruction-level parallelism, ILP, mm-hmm. which is like, okay, given the stream of instructions that all depend on each other, not every instruction depends directly on the instruction right before it. So I can take these three instructions and, and execute them simultaneously in parallel, and the answer from the first one is going to get fed into the fourth instruction, but I'm not executing that one yet. So I've got, you know, you know, instruction level parallelism, uh, parallelism of three. So I can in- execute instructions one, two, and three at the same time. Then maybe I can only do four or five. Then maybe I can do six, seven, eight all at the same time because they don't have any dependencies between them. And you can reorder instructions, right? A lot of what CPUs did to get faster was do more things at the same time within a single CPU. So, ah. and, and, that's, and that's called instruction-level parallelism. But unfortunately, there's all this computer science and theoretical stuff that says, how much instruction-level parallelism can we expect in certain classes of problems? And there's a limit to it. You never know how, how good your CPU or your compiler or whatever, you're never going to be able to extract more than a certain amount of instruction-level parallelism from a certain kind of workload because inherently the data dependencies prevent it. So part of the cranking the clock speed up was inside a single cpu how many instructions can you have in flight at once how many instructions can you be executing at once and those right. numbers got big the pipeline depth like on the pentium 4 is like you can have this you know this chain of instructions that are currently inside the cpu being processed be like 5 10 15 20 long right and then you'd have multiple execution units inside a single cpu like three things that can add four things that can multiply two things that can divide and they're all available for, you know, in best case scenario, you'd feed them all. Because like, aha, I can execute six instructions at once. And luckily, two of them are adds, and one of them's a subtract, and one's a multiply, and two are divides, and I can hand them all, right? But if you don't do that, and you're like, well, I can only execute three instructions at once, and they're both divides, and I only have two things that can do division, so I actually got to just do two. Like, all those trade-offs were happening inside the CPU, inside a single CPU, right? right? 
And the, the limits we got there was like, I can't turn the crank any faster because I can't break these instructions up into any smaller pieces. And the tight pipeline defs that are really long, that's bad for what I talked about before, preemptive multitasking, where, oh, I'm going to kick you off the CPU and now something else happens has to happen. And if you had a pipeline of 30 instructions in flight inside the CPU, and you're like, nope, sorry, a whole new process is coming and you just got to dump all that. You're like, oh, I was in the middle of this. And you just dump <laughs> all those instructions and a new, a new process comes on the CPU and it's got its own stuff and it fills the pipeline and the crank starts turning. And it's like, oh, wait, another instruction's here. And then you got to dump all that stuff out. That's inefficient, right? Very. So up to a certain point, and you know, pipeline depth has a limit of, of sanity and instruction level parallelism inherently has a limit based on the workloads. And that's why eventually when you've got all these transistors, it's like, why don't you just make one CPU be- bigger, better, and faster? You reach those limits. You reach lim- limits of pipeline depth, clock speed, clock speed, and instruction level parallelism. Then the only, literally the only thing left to, left to do with all those transistors that you have available, because Moore's Law is still cranking, and it's like, I've got, I can put so many transistors in. A, I, it's like, I have so many transistors, and I can't turn those transistors into performance. They're just burning a hole in my pocket. I've got to do something with those transistors. And I can't make a single CPU any faster for a variety of reasons having to do with like the limitations of how, you know, the clock speed and, and the feature size and, you know, how fast you can make the clock oscillate without, you know, anyway. So they made multiple CPU cores, right? But this multiprocessor stuff is way before they hit any of those limits. There was so much more runway to make a single CPU faster, to make a single CPU have more, uh, you know, superscalar execution of multiple, uh, you know, instructions being processed at once, much deeper pipeline depths, much bigger caches. That was all to come, uh, but you know the the first application of multiprocessors was the the problems that are the most amenable to being split up into chunks that don't need to know about each other, and those existed long before we hit the limits in CPUs. Daystar was there to take advantage of it, and Apple wisely said, "Well, we maybe wouldn't have done this ourselves because." <laughs> It's not the most efficient thing in the world, and it's hard to sell, especially if you don't make Photoshop. Apple doesn't make Photoshop. I guess they could say, buy this Mac, and you can run this third-party application that we don't even make, and it makes it faster. Does it make anything else faster, Apple? Eh, not really. I mean, it's not. It's, it's a hard pitch, but once it existed, and people proved they wanted to buy it, Apple's like, all right, well, someone already did that work, so why don't we just take advantage of it? And then eventually we'll have this great new Copeland operating system that will let, oh, let us yes. spread all of our processes across those multiple CPUs, and it will be great. And that didn't work out. Mm-mm. But they, at least they were smart enough to, kind of like Intel, where Intel was smart enough that when AMD made a straightforward 64-bit extension to the x86 instruction set, Intel, after trying to make its own 64-bit instruction set that was a successor to x86 and mostly failing, was wise enough to say, all right, we'll just do the thing that AMD did, because they already did it. And people, and people have shown that they like it, so that's it, right? So uh, Apple did that on a very small scale with uh, Daystar MP. Somebody else did the work, proved that it was viable, and Apple eventually grudgingly agreed. Yep. Okay. Thank you for your time. I just no wrote this script, it. and I thought I could hear John in here. I can hear him. Yeah, we'll see if we can get something out of it. Don't you want to learn about a very long instruction word computing, V-L-I-W? I was going to say, a, you were reminding me of acronyms. that John Rubenstein presentation in Macworld Expo that one year, where he was <laughs> like, "Let's, we're loading the instructions in. Look at risk. Look at risk and how good it is. And mm-hmm. we was like, we load the instructions in, and then we do this thing, and then they walk off, and they march off, and then we do this. And, and you know, that was all just trying to diffuse the megahertz myth. Yeah, if you don't see, even, forget about presentations, obviously Apple doesn't do anymore, but you don't even see like in nerd communities discussions. I always talk about that on ATP whenever they talk about Geekbench or something like, why aren't people arguing about how a non-representative Geekbench is yeah. anything? 
Oh yeah, like that, my my entire oh, like young adulthood was spent just arguing about that specific thing well, on the internet. You know, now this it's like oh, Geekbench score is gospel because um, as far as YouTubers are concerned, it's fine. Among the great um, tragedies of losing the big computer magazine staffs is that we built our own benchmarks, and they were um, unlike I believe Geekbench. They were not synthetic they were based on specific real world uses and the whole idea was even like even macbench which was um like a not a product you could buy but you could get it on a cd if you were you know but it was actually using specially licensed limited versions of real software so we would launch photoshop and run a bunch of things even if you didn't have photoshop it had a special version of photoshop that only ran the 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 benchmark test and, you know, again, it it's an art about what you choose. But I think about that every time I run Geekbench because, you know, Geekbench is also, there. it's an art of what they're testing there. But does it really test? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's one person's guess of what usage is. Yeah. And, and it's and, so and, easy to emphasize something different if you want. It tries to be fair, but like it that's, does. That, the whole the whole thing is like you, you back in the day was you had to have synthetic benchmarks to show theoretically uh, what is possible with the CPU, assuming right. there was an application that could take advantage of it, right? And then, but then at the other end, you need the real world applications. It's like okay, given applications that have not yet been optimized for the CPU, how does how does it handle those? And then everything in between. Where well, that- it's like. You know, here's an application that fits into the sweet spot. It fits slightly less or whatever, but you'd want to see that range. And then you could look at it and make a choice and say, look, this thing, the CPU theoretical performance doesn't have anything special, but it does run the thing that I do in the application I use every day this amount faster. So I know I'm going to, what I'm going to be getting from it. Or if you have an application in mind and you say, aha, if I optimize for the CPU, it can be 20 times faster. So I'm going to use this new AltaVec instruction set. Even though nothing uses it now, this synthetic benchmark tells me if I write an application like this, I can make it 20 times faster than I thought I could yesterday, right? So you do need all those different benchmarks. But now we just get like a number like, oh, yep. single core is 1,100 qubits. Yep. Great. What is, you know? Well, and, and even with our, our non-synthetic uh, like speed mark scores at Macworld at the end, those were all, you know, you have to normalize it to something. So then you set a, you know, what is one or 100 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And But it, it is kind of meaningless. Well, I mean, look at my... Uh, iMac review that I did. I've got Geekbench scores in there, but I ran Cinebench, which is a different benchmark score, and then I ran a Denoise in Isotope and a, a bounce out of Logic and an encode of a 4K video in Final Cut. Mm-hmm. Because I try, it was like these are things that I can test that are and and you know the truth is the results not that different, but they're real in a way that uh, just saying good Geekbench uh, is not great. And in fact, the the I would say that the margins are are greater. In the test yeah. that I did, the real test that I did, but Quinn Nelson had a good one. He did one of his recent videos. He built like a monster, like forty-eight core. I saw AMD PC, right? Yeah, and it was just you know just destroying the Mac Pro in every single test, right? But then it was like, well, look, if this is the thing you're pl- buying the computer for, I forget what it was, but it was some kind of like processing like eight K footage or something. Uh, suddenly, the difference in speed was like fifteen percent instead of like twenty times, mm-hmm. right? And it wasn't because it wasn't taking advantage of all the cores, and it wasn't because like it was not optimized for the much faster PC. It was an entirely different application. I forget what it was. It was like whatever, maybe it was Premiere or whatever. Whatever I the think, application was in the yeah, PC, I think it was and Premiere and Final, Final Cut, right? Yep. And obviously, Final Cut is like optimized within an inch of its life for Apple specific hardware, exactly. Right. And so it's saying, you know, it's like, look, if 
if you are going to do this kind of video editing every day, your best choice on the PC is this application, and here's how fast it is. And your best choice on the Mac is this application, and here's how fast it is, right? On the other hand, if you're going to use Cinebench, which is the same application, or, you know, some 3D program, it's the same application on both things like Maya or whatever, that has a huge difference, right? Because it runs, a, you know, it's optimized about the same amount for both platforms, right? So that, you know, like you could never make, without that single test that he did, you could never make an informed choice about those two things. Like say you liked Final Cut, but you're like, but how can I give this up? This machine is 11 times faster. It's like, it's 15% faster in the thing that you want to do. It's 11 times faster in these other things, but those aren't the things you're going to do with it. So you never, you don't care if it's 11 times faster, right? And that's what makes, you know, comparing those speeds so difficult. And a single Geekbench score, it's you'd never get any information that uh, out of that other than this one runs Geekbench X percent faster than that one. But I'm never like no one will literally ever run Geekbench. Like no one does that for their job except like, I suppose reviewers, right? Yep. Like if only I could run Geekbench twice as fast, then what would happen? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> but no one wants to argue about that anymore. Everyone just sees the number and they're like, oh, I guess that's a complete a complete picture of a computer speed, and I don't need to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm.